Good morning. Well, a couple warnings this morning. First, I hear right now we don't have bathrooms. So, you know, things happen. All right? You can hold it. There's also 10 acres in the back. Okay? We will give you toilet paper. Uh, Secondly, uh, it has been quite a week in the Whitlow household. Uh, Lindsay's been sick for about eight days now. Uh, Shay has been sick. Uh, Augie has been sick. I've been sick. Uh, and so if my voice this morning is a little weak and I sound like I'm a 13-year-old going through puberty, I'm telling you in advance why, okay? Um, and Reagan actually hasn't gotten sick. So apparently a fierce diet of uh, granola bars uh, and muffins really does the trick, okay? So if you're wondering, uh, that's the secret right there. Um, You know that I had a good sleep last night because I slept in three different beds, okay? Uh, If you count August's floor as one bed. Uh, So it's been that kind of week for us, but it's good to be here this morning uh, with each and every one of you guys and uh, to to just have church and to open up the Word of God together and see what He wants to teach us. If you're new around Redemption, my name's Stephen. I'm the pastor. Thank you so much for being here uh, this morning. It's our honor to have you. Uh, if, if you like what you experienced this morning, we'd love to help you get more connected. Uh, if you don't like it, uh, you know, people seem to like leaving one-star reviews on Google, so that's another option too, okay? Um, but we are grateful that you're here. Even if you don't like it, we have a gift for you uh, on the way out today, and thanks for joining us. Uh, We are in a series entitled How to Create a Counterculture. The first five weeks of this series were about uh, what we need to do in here, like inside of you, inside our homes, inside our marriages. The second half of this series that I kicked off last weekend was what we need to do collectively and corporately, what we need to do as a church, and then what we need to do in, in bringing this to the community. And most of the Bible, actually, is not written to individual people. It's not written to like, hey, you do this. Most of the Bible actually uh, is written in like a corporate setting, uh, instructions to entire churches or instructions to entire communities. So this type of preaching actually uh, is easy because most of the Bible uh, makes it available to preach to like an entire community. And so that's what we're doing. Last week, we talked about the need for strong churches and strong churches, two things. One, they are promoters and defenders of the truth. And we talked about the essential, urgent need for that. And then secondly, uh, they are built on Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look a little bit more what it means to be built in Christ as a community. So last week, we talked about strong churches. Now we're talking about today, strong community within the context of the church. And the community that we're supposed to experience as the church is strikingly countercultural. And so we're going to talk about that uh, this morning through uh, a passage. I don't say this very often, but if you have a Bible, you can open it to Leviticus. And so we're going to be in Leviticus this morning. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story arc of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third chapter of the Bible in what we know as the Old Testament. Uh, there are a lot of people today that say, oh, the Old Testament is outdated. It's irrelevant. It's unnecessary. Uh, I've yet to meet somebody or hear of somebody who says those things and also holds on to proper doctrine. Uh, the Old Testament is very relevant. It is very necessary, and it is not outdated. And that's why we're going to see in here some beautiful truths written to the children of Israel on how to create the community. Now, what you're also going to see here uh, is one famous line uh, that a very popular figure in the New Testament uses, this famous line. And if you ever wondered where that popular figure in the New Testament, I'm talking about Jesus, where he got this line, it's from Leviticus. 
Again, affirming the Old Testament and the truths that are found in it. And so our quest this morning uh, is first to talk about what uh, the, 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 the countercultural community doesn't look like, and then we're going to have three applications for what it is supposed to look like. Now, as I set this up, I'll also say this, that this type of community should exist in every little pocket of our lives as followers of Christ, okay? Christian uh, uh, pockets. And so what I mean by that is the church, okay, hopefully our marriage, um, our Christian friendship circles, uh, or our life groups, whatever that might look like. And, and, and I think the more this type of community exists in your family, uh, the more this type of community exists, the better off it is for the world. But we need to understand what was God's strategy for community? What was it to look like? And he lays it out here so beautifully in Leviticus. Leviticus 18 uh, helps us understand first what, uh, what God doesn't want for us. And here's what he says. He says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You're going to hear that over and over and over. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. In other words, what God is saying is this. The type of community that I want you to form, don't make your standard Egypt and don't make your standard Canaan. The world gets it wrong. And oftentimes, uh, what happens in the, in the church world or even Christians in general, what we say is, oh, I want to learn a little bit uh, from how the world does things, and then I'll apply some biblical inside of it. And what God is saying here from the beginning is that the standard of what community is supposed to look like, particularly in the church, uh, the world has nothing to teach us. He's saying, look at God's word. God is saying, I'm going to lay it out for you. This is how you do it. And specifically saying, don't go back to Egypt. Now, what did Egypt uh, um, symbolize for them? Or not even symbolize, it was. Uh, for them, it was their place of slavery. And so if you don't know the, the history of God's chosen people, the Israelites, uh, 70 of them moved to Egypt because one of them was second in command. And it was to save this family uh, in, in a time of famine. But then that family grew uh, to millions. It started at 70 and it grew to millions. But for 400 years, this family, which we now know as the Israelites, was enslaved by the Egyptians. Now, as horrendous and horrible and, of course, as bad and evil as that is, uh, there were times after the Israelites had left Egypt that they were wandering in the wilderness and they would have these ideas. Hey, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back. At least there we were fed. Uh, at least there we had a place to sleep. At least there uh, we, we had enough to drink. At least there people weren't trying to kill us. And it was this uh, trick of the enemy to get them to want to go back to something that was not God's best for them. Uh, it was a place of totalitarianism. It, for them, it was a place of literal, physical enslavement. Metaphorically, uh, this has often been described as a place of spiritual enslavement for us as individuals. Uh, and there's this idea of looking back and they're saying, well, okay, maybe it wasn't so bad. At least we had a couple of good things. Uh, let's just go back to there. And God is compelling them. He's saying, no, I have something so much better better for you. My friend, I would say there's an encouragement in that. Don't return to your previous enslavement spiritually. Don't look back and say, well, at least that was going on, or at least that. No, if God has set you free from it, walk in the freedom that he has created for you. Now, in the same way, he contrasts, uh, he doesn't contrast, he says, also, uh, it, 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 the community I want you to form, it's not 
to be found in the land of Canaan. Now, what was the land of Canaan? It was a little different. The land of Canaan, so Egypt, one, uh, one authority, one totalitarian government. What was the land of Canaan? The land of Canaan uh, was multicultural. There were all different sorts of ideas. There was no standard of truth. There was idol worship rampant, idol worship in both camps, uh, but there was idol worship that was rampant. And uh, Canaan more represents this idea. Uh, go find the, the modern culture uh, and assimilate into it. Uh, you can bring a little bit of your God into this, and so you'll have your God, and they have their God, and you can kind of uh, just assimilate uh, into the assembly of the other nations uh, and, and just kind of merge right into it. God says, no, 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 that's not the path either. The path of the Christian community is not that we would look kind of like uh, uh, the, the modern day and the worship of their gods, take a little bit of them on and a little bit of, uh, of our God. In fact, as you continue to read through Leviticus, there are some obscure uh, laws in Leviticus that people today even now make fun of. And they're like, oh, come on. Like, you can't possibly say that this is right or that is right. Like, those are Old Testament laws. And some of those laws, uh, Christ did abolish on the cross. But other of those laws, they were actually teaching us principles. And the principles they were teaching us was this, don't assimilate. James says it this way in the New Testament. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. What does he mean by that? He means that as a follower of Christ or as a Christian community, that you can't simultaneously hold on to the values and the worship of God and the values and the worship of the world. And over and over right now, unfortunately, here's what we're saying. And I've heard two crazy stories just this week of the church, uh, uh, not our church, the church as a whole taking steps Closer and closer and closer to assimilating with the land of Canaan. The countercultural community is neither Egypt nor Canaan. It is something altogether different. And what is it supposed to look like? Well, that's where uh, God takes the text next. He says this, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Let me summarize this in a different way. You should do it my way because it's way better. I know because I created you. That's what he's saying right here. He says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. What's that statement mean? Simply this. If somebody will obey, if somebody will follow the way that I have laid out the course of life, it will be good for them. Jesus says it'll be the life, uh, the abundant life. Paul calls it the life that is truly life. Uh, Joshua 1.8, it's our key verse for the year, uh, says this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. In other words, follow God's path. It's always best. That's what he says. And so he's laying that out, and then God is going to give, um, I'm going to summarize them into three simple instructions on how the Christian community, how the strong community of the church, and if we want to create a counterculture, if we want to bring the message of the gospel and the glory of God to our world, then we need a strong, tight-knit community here as the body of Christ. And by the way, when I say strong, tight-knit community here uh, as the body of Christ, I'm not saying that that means um, that we don't let anybody into it. Everyone's invited to experience redemption. As we often say this, everyone's allowed to come in no matter what you are, but our goal, hope, dream, and prayer for you is that you will change into what God wants you to be. Now, the community, strong, tight-knit, yes, 
right? And it, uh, by the way, most of the New Testament goes into explaining how the community is supposed to interact with each other. And the three headings that I'm giving are ex- explained more thoroughly through most of the New Testament. But what it's saying is the, uh, the protective nature of this is what God is trying to create, of uh, the way that the, uh, the community is supposed to operate through these one, two, three steps this morning. Now, I know it's way more complicated than one, two, three, but it's good to have good headers on the top to know this is what this community looks like. And as followers of Christ, we have an open invitation to anyone at any time, no matter what they've done, what they've said, what they've thought about us previously, come on in and let Jesus change you. Okay? All right. What are they? What are the three headers? Let me give you the first one. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father, his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. What's going on there? Okay, first off, he's kind of summarizing the Ten Commandments in just a couple of verses. And so he's, he's reminding them, hey, remember all ten of those things that we worked through? You guys memorized them. You sang the song, right? And he's saying, okay, so remember those Ten Commandments. He summarizes them really quickly as the standard, like the big standard of God's whole Holiness. And now um, what, what he's teaching in there, he says, gather everybody together. And he's speaking yes to the individual. That was our first week of this series. But he's also speaking to the corporate body. Individually, we are to be holy, but corporately, we are to be a holy body. And let me say this another way. We are to be a set apart body, mutually committed to what? Worship of King Jesus. Worship of God. Ultimately, what is to unite us most here, and you should feel most committed and connected here when you are most passionately pursuing Jesus. Now, what is supposed to connect us most? It's not all of those other things on the top, and there are certain things that help us become friends with people, right? Mutual love for sports or mutual love for uh, whatever else. Pick a topic, right? Uh, But the thing that is most supposed to connect us is our mutual love for Jesus, that you love Christ, that I love Christ. Another way to look at it is this. Uh, in the New Testament, we see this doctrinal term, uh, adoption. And what adoption is, we understand the, the concept of adoption, but spiritual, uh, spiritual adoption is that we were outside of Christ. We were by ourselves. We were, uh, in that way, orphaned, uh, apart from the family uh, of God. And, and through uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we were then welcomed back into the family. And the community is a mutual uh, group of people who understand their uh, uh, adoptive nature, who understand their orphan nature and then were reintroduced back into the family by the, by the sacrifice of the son and the grace and the love of the father. And so the community then is strong because it is centered around and built on a mutual love for Jesus. Let me say it this way. Strong churches are super important, proclaiming and defending the truth. But we have seen churches go awry when they just proclaim and defend the truth and they forget about the important nature of the strong, loving, Jesus-centered community. Let me say this another way. Um, If my job as a pastor was just to proclaim and defend the truth, then I'd hire uh, or I'd pay for some TV spots and some radio spots and I would just go around proclaiming and defending the truth. But the nature of the church is not just proclaiming and defending the truth. It's also forming the community. 
Both of those things are essential to what God is trying to do, create, and produce. In Ephesians chapter 4, nope, I lied. Ephesians chapter 2, this is kind of a long passage, so if you are flipping along in your Bible, you can come over with me. I want to just read this to you. Ephesians 2, uh, it's the the New Testament version uh, of what we had just read, and it reminds us of this important point. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now look at this. This is a corporate reading, okay? It's to a collective body. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, remember, at one point in time, you were on the outside, But what happened? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the only thing that could have brought us near. And it is good to get excited about um, uh, certain things. And we get excited around here about certain things. I'm going to talk about a project in a second that we're going to get excited about. Next week, I'm going to talk about a project uh, that we're working on as a church. The following week, I'm going to get a little bit more like the individual projects that you're getting. And it's, ex- it's good to get excited about projects and things that are happening and moving and all of that kind of stuff. But we have to remember why, why, why? Because Jesus brought us in, because Jesus united us, and every Everything we do as a church has to be uh, coming off and springboarding off of that idea that it started with Jesus bringing us all collectively together. His grace, his sacrifice, his blood on the cross. Now, why is this so important for us to understand? Because community has a natural tendency, maybe you've experienced this, community has a natural tendency to break down. Friendships have a natural tendency to break down. Even family relationships have a natural tendency to break down. Churches have a natural tendency to break down. Maybe you've been a part of it. What's supposed to stop that? A mutual commitment to Jesus, holding everyone together. Look what it says. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus did, and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, now this is talking Jew and Gentile, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." The whole body, you and I, all of us together. What unites us, uh, again, not the worldly things. Uh, this is supposed to be a passion that is greater than any worldly passions. It's greater than patriotism. It's greater than uh, we all like the same sports team. It's greater than we all graduated from the same school. It's greater than any of these other things that would naturally uh, connect people together. This idea right here, he says, that you are mutually saved by Jesus and that brings you together. That is the uh, the. the strongest tie, and then you are given the Holy Spirit, which ties you up even more. And then as you walk in the fullness of Christ, what happens is you grow up into, he calls it a temple in the Lord. That's the picture of the strong community. 
Now, why does the community need to be strong? Well, remember what we talked about last week. The community needs to be strong because it has an important mission. What? To proclaim and defend the truth and weakness in the community will uh, d- uh, delay or, to, or destroy the ability to deliver and to promote and to defend the truth because uh, the work has got strategy of redemption. And so the community has to be built in a strong fashion and the strongest fashion is to be united through our mutual love for Christ, the mutual Holy Spirit inside of us, and he's growing us up into a temple of the Lord. That's the picture of the strong community. Now compare this to all of the other options out there. Compare this to the Egyptian strength. What was it? Brute force and a totalitarian leader. That was their strategy. What was their strategy over here? Uh, the Canaanites. Similar to that, but part of their strategy was just let everybody believe what they want. And uh, you'll see that when the Israelites broke into there, it was just constant war, fighting, tension, people turning on each other. Uh, I mean, this ki- I mean, it kind of looked like high school, right? Or kind of looked like, uh, like the world that we live in right now. Believe whatever you want to believe. Turn. Uh, be friends when, when it's helpful for you. Turn on them when it's not helpful for you. And there's just constant breakdown. And in the middle of it all, not that, not this, there's the Christian community that is supposed to be something so much different. That's what I hope brings you here, to be a part of that, because that is the type of community that God then uses to shape his world. So this is the the first part uh, of what he's saying. You have to be committed to this mutual love and affection for Christ. Now, it goes beyond that, because uh, how many of you know, you can get a bunch of Christians in a room, and they don't always agree. Isn't that crazy? right? Even Christians. And so uh, you can put them in a room, but then God's like, okay, now let me give you a few more instructions. Uh, once you are settled in on your mutual love for Christ on how to treat each other. Now look how countercultural this is. Leviticus 19, let me just read through a couple of these. Uh, 11 through 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Um, actually, I'm going to start over. Just raise your hand if you hit any of these this week. Just, that's a joke if you're new. Okay. Um, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. This is also good marriage advice. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Let's go down to verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Let's go to verse 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's he doing? He's kind of re-summarizing some of the Ten Commandments. He's adding a little bit of instruction. This is just a snapshot of everything else that is in there. But what he's doing, and Paul, by the way, gleans off of this in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. So if you want to do any of your own reading, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, that's the New Testament version of what God is saying right here. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, this is how now you function among each other. Yes, it's good to be committed to Christ, but then you also need to be committed to uh, treating each other in this way, and that will form the tight-knit community. 
Now again, as I've said, this works at every level. This works in uh, your relationship with your spouse. This works in your relationship with your family. Uh, this works in the relationships of a life group. This works in the relationships of, uh, like if you're a bunch of Christians working together, this works in the, in the nature of, uh, and then also, of course, in the, in the body of Christ, the church. And he's saying, this is how you now have to, uh, to treat each other. This is how you respond. This is what keeps the community strong. Now, he gives some motivation. He tells us both why and how to do it, and I think why and how are always important. We're going to start with the why, okay, because the modern readers tell us to, right? So we'll start with the why, and, uh, and then we'll go into the how. The why we are supposed to do this is he repeats it over and over. Why? Because I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You saw the snapshot of it in Ephesians at the end there when he says uh, that the the spirit is in you and he is growing you up uh, into being the temple of the Lord. The very reason that we are supposed to treat each other uh, the way that God is laying it out here, why? Because he is a holy God. Now, why does that compel us to behave in a certain way? Well, at the very first, it's because he's God and he said it, so we should do it. But second reason would be this, that we actually see God model this in and of himself, that God lives in the perfect uh, community, not stealing, not lying, not dealing falsely with himself in his Trinitarian nature, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I could create a ridiculous scenario where, you, uh, where it's like the son gossiping about the Holy Spirit to the Father, or the Holy Spirit um, slandering Jesus to the Father. And you go, that is absolutely ridiculous, Stephen. Of course it is. That's how ridiculous it is, or supposed to be, for us to do that within the body of the church. He is the Lord. And the Holy Spirit now is in us. He's building us up into a temple. Let me give you a practice. The next time you're about to say the thing, the next time you're about to do the thing, the next time you're about to break down the the relationship, whatever it might be, to simply remind yourself, I am the Lord. He's God. Okay. Now, how does that compel me now to do this differently? You are being, uh, we are being brought together and uh, the, the presence of sin, which these things are, destroys what God is trying to build. The presence then of forgiveness, of grace, right, of restraint from not doing these things brings us together more and more, tightening the relationship more and more. Now, we'll never be as perfect in our relationship here in the church as the Trinity is within itself, okay? Uh, but we can shoot for it and we can uh, allow the Trinity in its nature to help us get there. And that's the strong community, committed to each other. Why? Because he is the Lord. That's our motivation. He's the God, and so he's the God over us, but he's also the God in us. He's the God who exists in perfect community. He's the God who's connecting us together in perfect harmony. Friend, this is, by the way, not bad marriage advice. The next time you're having a a conversation with your spouse... Okay, to, to get into that conversation, like, okay, man, we, we committed before God, right? All right, that this was God's, and so how do we do this? We're one, okay? Uh, he's the Lord, and, and it honors him for us to not lie, steal, slander, uh, hold a grudge, whatever it might be. How do we work through this? You see how this compels us then? Because he's God, right? It's not just say, oh, it's good for the organization. Oh, it, it's good for you. A lot of time we cloak this stuff now and, well, it's good for you to work through it. It's good for you. Okay, that's, that's, that's fine as a secondary reason. What's the primary reason? He's God. He's the Lord. He's invited us into his family. That's the strong community. And I don't think it's hard to see how this is countercultural. 
right? In our, in our modern day, we build um, community around all of these lesser secondary issues, right? And then, uh, and then we allow those communities to break down by all of these things, the lying and the false witness and, and every other thing and this holding a grudge, not loving our neighbor, all of these types of things. And he says, no, 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 the Christian community, not Egypt, not Canaan, but something altogether beautiful. What will it produce? Something beyond anything you could have ever experienced in Egypt or Canaan. This peace, this community that is so countercultural. Now, how do we go about doing it? That's an important question, too. And it's, um, it, it's locked, uh, uh, like, right here in verse 17. And uh, if you're not careful, um, you, you might miss it. And uh, I had some good people pointed out to me this week. Verse 17 tells us how to do this. I, I honestly hope this verse will unlock some things in our church and in your, in your life. And by the way, it perfectly aligns with Jesus' statement that the truth will set you free. Let me read it. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Modern translation of this verse that is wrong would say this. You shall not hate your brother. Instead, you should love your brother. And the way to love your brother is to not say anything. Isn't that true? That, that in our modern environment, that when we say, um, uh, don't hate your brother, the opposite of hate then is to just stay quiet. Well, what if they're doing something that is wrong? Just stay quiet. What if they're in sin? Just stay quiet. And what, what, what has happened in our society is we have created a culture where we have said that the loving thing to do is to always remain silent. This is unbiblical and it is unhelpful. In fact, what God is saying here is this, that the way to not hate your brother and therefore then to do what it says at the end, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, is to be able to reason. Okay, first off, you have to know how to reason. Okay, frankly, with honesty. In other words, you need to be able to have a logical, rational, truth-based conversation with that person. Void of that, there can't be the presence of real love. Okay. I'm going to hit this thing a little bit harder because I think it's super important. And I think there's three types of conversations, by the way, that have to happen. The first conversation, this is for any community, any marriage, any family group, anything to happen. Okay, uh, these three things need to happen. There need to be truth-based conversations. There need to be restorative conversations. And there need to be a proper alignment or of authority conversations. All three of those conversations are absolutely essential in order to maintain the strength of the community. And the secret of it is found right here in this text. Let me give an example real quick that might help us understand a little bit what I'm talking about. I'm going to drink some water before this example. All right. I want to say this. This is a purely hypothetical situation, okay? Let's imagine that there was a time when there was a big problem, and the big problem was that everybody was very thirsty. There was a thirst problem, Okay, and uh, everyone was like, "How do we solve this thirst problem?" And uh, and, and people came up with some ideas. And the, the first idea they said is this: Okay, uh, to, in order to solve the, the problem that everybody is thirsty, um, this is what we should do. We should all separate from each other for two weeks. And if we separate each other from each other for two weeks, it'll certainly stop the thirst problem. 
And so everybody, being very obedient and wanting to stop this thirst problem, says, that's fine. And they separate from each other for two weeks. But after two weeks, they understand or they realize people are still thirsty. This doesn't seem to be working. But they say, why are we separating ourselves again for two weeks to stop the thirst problem? Oh, it's the loving thing to do. Huh, okay. So after two weeks that uh, everyone separates from each other because it's the loving thing to do to stop the thirst problem. Uh, next, somebody comes up with an idea and they said, here, here's how we can stop the thirst problem. Um, actually, all you have to do is just put the water bottle in front of your mouth. You can strap it on so it's easier. If you just wear the, oh, Stephen, be loving, I'm sorry. If you, just, if you just put the water bottle over your mouth, that will solve the thirst problem. And somebody raises their hand and they go, uh, do we actually have any statistical evidence that wearing the water bottle over your mouth isn't, the, aren't you supposed to, will that actually solve the thirst problem? There's no evidence? Okay, um, but it's the loving thing to do. So everybody walks around with the water bottle over their mouth, solving the thirst problem. Under the guise, it's the loving thing to do. Now, eventually, after, let's say, six months or so, we realized that the, um, wearing water bottles over our mouth isn't actually solving the thirst problem at all. And so somebody else comes up with another idea to solve the thirst problem. And this time they go, don't worry, it's a doctor. And you go, oh, well, it must be fine then. So Dr. Pfizer, I mean Pepper, comes up with a plan. Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Comes up with a plan. And he says, here's the deal. I have a solution. All you have to do is drink this. You say, do we know this will work? He said, you don't actually have to drink all of it. You just have to drink like, uh, I don't know, like a shot size, okay? And if you drink that, okay, again, this is purely hypothetical. If you drink that, if you drink that shot size of it, it will solve the thirst problem. And you go, is, are we sure it'll solve the thirst problem? Have we tested this? Yes, there's 100 people over there. 10 of them are missing teeth. Were they missing teeth beforehand? <laughs> don't ask questions. Okay. Take it, and it will solve the thirst problem. So everyone just starts taking shots at Dr. Pepper. And they realize, this didn't satisfy my thirst problem. And then they go, that's because you have to sign up for a subscription service. Every six months, you'll get more Dr. Pepper. Now, in this purely hypothetical situation, okay? And if you're drawing weird conclusions out there, that's on you, okay? Why would I bring this up? Maybe, because there's an effort to create a... Oh, by the way, I said this on the first one, I missed it on the third one. Why do you take the shot of Dr. Pepper? It's the loving thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. Maybe, just maybe, there is a concerted effort in our culture and society to create a string of behavior, not just in this thirst example, but over and over and over to get people to accept and to embrace things that they would never accept and embrace, but they will because they feel a guilt that's being laid out toward them because they're told this is the loving thing to do. 
And you can't step up and ask rational, logical, truth-based conversation. We can't have that or you'll get blasted on social media. You'll get canceled. You'll be called hateful and spiteful. And oh my gosh, I can't believe you don't love people because you weren't willing to wear the thing over my mouth. You weren't willing to take the shot of Dr. Pepper. You don't love people. Listen, I don't care if people stand too far away from each other. I don't care if people put a water bottle over them. I don't really care if people take shots of Dr. Pepper. I don't really care. We used to live in a free country. You can do what you want, okay? But what I do care about is when there is a concerted effort to force people into doing things, embracing things, and accepting things that are fundamentally not true under the guise that it is the loving thing to do. Because... Because when you do, when you steal love... When you steal love, and by the way, my God sent his son to die on a cross to define and describe love, and that is real love, and you don't get to steal it and cheapen it. We followers of Christ, because Christ in us, we own love. We don't let the world get to it under false premises, forcing behavior. And yes, it was this then, but what will it be next? We already see it. Embrace this behavior. It's the loving thing to do. Embrace the next behavior. It's the loving thing to do. Embrace this. It's the loving thing to do. All of a sudden, you'll be back in Egypt, totalitarian. It's not what God wanted. Go the other way. Go the other way, right? I, I, know, I know there's no standard of morality in this, but embrace it. It's the loving thing to do. Accept this, accept this, accept this, accept this, accept this view of marriage, accept this view of gender, accept this view of sexuality, accept this view of what's appropriate, accept this view. You're going to end up in Canaan, okay? The only thing that stops us from either Egypt or Canaan is a strong church in strong community telling the world, you will not commandeer love because God told us that love is having an honest, rational, logical conversation about what is actually true. Okay? Again, purely hypothetical. I just want to keep ranting, but I'm out of time. Okay. <laughs> because here's the deal, guys. And the reason I picked such a strong metaphor is because it's true. And it is one example of trying to silence people from having honest conversation. And there is no love apart from truth. And if we create a culture that won't allow that kind of conversation to happen, we will not have what God wanted. We will have Egypt and we will have Canaan. And I'll be, for one, I'll just say it. I love my kids enough. I love my kids enough that I don't want to see them ending up living in a world that reflects that or that.
All right. Man, what? It's already noon? There's not another service. Text ahead, okay? Tell me you're going to be late for your dinner. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. I just... There's enough. Okay. I'm going to talk about one last thing. This is another way that um, I'll say the world has stolen something that's supposed to belong to us, guys. And we need to take it back. I'll read it through um, 19, 9 and 10. 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And then, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the falling grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. If you didn't know, I named my daughter Reagan. I named her for a very specific reason that existed mostly in the 80s, okay? And oftentimes people say, Stephen, I can't believe you believe some of the things you believe being a Christian. No, I believe everything I believe because I'm a Christian, okay? I believe everything I believe because I'm a Christian. And I believe exactly what the scriptures are affirming here, which is individual property rights, okay? You can't give what you don't own, okay? Um, I, I believe that. I believe, uh, I believe in work ethic, because, uh, which is also being shown in here. And then I believe deeply in this, remembering the poor and the disadvantaged. And friends, the strong community is not the strong community that it is supposed to be unless we actively remember the poor and the disadvantaged. We are called to that. Even in the big debate that happens in the early church in Acts, they're sent out and they've solved some doctrinal issues, but they say to them, this is the solution to the doctrinal issue, but as you go, remember the poor. And Paul says, it was the very thing I was eager to do. We have to be a people, individually and corporately, that remember the poor and the disadvantaged the practically poor, like the, the physically literal poor and the spiritually poor. But here this is reminding us of the practically poor. And the community is not the community that it is supposed to be if it forgets this third trait. It also in here alludes, I didn't have time to go into it, but it alludes to understanding true biblical justice. True biblical justice. And by the way, it says here in this scripture, you can read it for yourself later, uh, that true biblical justice, you favor neither the rich nor the poor. And we have seen both of those things happen in our culture. True biblical justice favors the law, not somebody in either economic class. And we should care about that, okay? And we should care about true justice. We should care about true uh, race relations. We should care about the poor and the disadvantaged. It is our thing to own. The church is always up to this. And we need to. And it's countercultural. Why? Uh, the way it happens is countercultural. It's countercultural because it's challenging those who would say, I do care about the poor. You know what? I, I pay my taxes and I gave some people some jobs. I care about the poor. That text is saying, that's not enough. It's not enough. If you make good money, your $25 a gift a year, that's not enough. You don't care about the poor. That's not enough. It's also countercultural because it's saying this, uh, that the way you care about the poor and the disadvantaged is a way with dignity and a way also that compels them to play their part and to take individual responsibility. It's countercultural on both sides. 
And what's it saying? It's saying that there needs to be a community of people that does more than the bare minimum in being intentional and thinking through how can we remember the poor and then also how can we do it in such a way that compels them to play their part, to grow, to do whatever, to take individual responsibility because these are values from God. Both sides of it. And this is a part of the mark of the strong community. Now, as a church, we're intentional about this. Every dollar that comes in here, 10 cents or 10% of everything that's brought in, is set aside into what we call our family fund, which primarily exists to take care of the needs within our church family. And we do this as a corporate entity body, and we need to do this as individuals as well. And I would challenge you to. There's one couple in our church, they, uh, they own a small business, have a couple of employees, and I'm always inspired by hearing their stories of how they come alongside uh, their employees uh, doing more than just, oh, I gave them a job, oh, I just gave them a job. No, how can I help them? How can I serve them better? How, how can I come alongside them in their moment of need? That's an example of going above and beyond. It's not just about the paycheck, it's about what can I do? And friends, we all need to take on this mindset. This is ours to own. I've said this before, most government exists because the church does not. And the strong church, the counterculture, will balance all of these things. I want to share with you, oh, um, actually, I'm going to do it this way. Yep, I want to, nope, I'm going to do it this way. All right. <laughs> Let me end with this. I'm going to end my sermon, and then I have more to say. <laughs> um, let me end my sermon with this. You might look at this verse and go, um, Stephen, it's just one random passage in the Old Testament. How important is this? How important is this idea to God? Oh, it's really important. Let me read it to you again. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. There was an individual generations later who took this seriously. He was a wealthy guy who owned a, a large field, and he took this instruction of the Lord hundreds of years later, later very seriously. And because he did, um, uh, there was a, an, uh, at the same time, he didn't know this was going on, but in another city, there was a family going through tragedy. And as that family was going, Going through tragedy, losing everything that they had. They journeyed back to their homeland. Uh, for one of the ladies, the older lady, it was her homeland. For the other lady, uh, she was now going to be a foreigner in this land. And so uh, they happened to be a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And so they travel over back to their homeland. And fortunately for them, in their homeland is an, uh, a wealthy guy who took the word of God seriously and was um, harvesting his field in this way. And so the um, now uh, impossible mother-in-law and daughter-in-law get there and the daughter-in-law doing her duty goes and begins to pick up all of the gleanings on the outside of the field because one individual was obedient to the word of God and started doing that and eventually what happened is that individual, the wealthy guy, took notice of the uh, poor immigrant lady who was working hard uh, to take care of her stepmother and they mother-in-law and they eventually her, her husband had died and eventually those two end up getting married. Their names were Boaz and Ruth. And they have a baby who has a baby who has a baby, and that baby's name is King David, who has a baby who has a baby who has a baby, and 14 generations after that has a baby, and his name is King Jesus. Okay? That's how important this is. That in one instruction, remember the poor. Had Jesus not said it, or had God not written into it, right? Boaz probably wouldn't have. What would have been there for Moab uh, or for, uh, for Naomi and Ruth then? 
Now, obedience to God's instructions ended up leading to something so far beyond anything Boaz could have ever imagined. And so this is one lesson we draw from this. Obedience in this way can open up things that we could never even think about. The second thing this reminds us, though, is it properly places us in the story. And there's an element for some of us from a practical perspective that we look and we say, okay, I'm the Boaz and I got to do what I got to do. But there's another side of the story that we have to look at ourselves and we have to remember, according to Ephesians, that we were the immigrant, the poor on the outside. But King Jesus, who has the greatest harvest of all, didn't just give up the outskirts of it. He gave up his entire inheritance in heaven so that we could be in. We were the poor and he brought us back in. That's the gospel. And why did he bring us back in? So that we could be committed to mutual worship of Jesus, so we could be committed to each other, because he is the Lord through honest and truthful conversation, understanding what love truly is, and so that we could remember and serve the poor and the disadvantaged and create an environment where everyone is, everyone is invited to experience redemption, no matter what you have done or what God has brought you through, and also to create an environment that if you have a need, we will help meet it. That's why. And so let's be that. I'm going to show you one practical way we're going to do that in a second. Let's pray first. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you were such a better Boaz. You left everything for us. And we didn't even do the hard work like Ruth did to deserve it. We were the one on the outside who didn't even want to work, and yet your love compelled us in. Thank you. What a beautiful gospel. Oh, and Father, I pray the beauty of that gospel would compel us now to act in the way that you have shown us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.